The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. This is from the Book of Serenity in Case 20. Dijang's Nearness, the pointer. The profound talk entering into Numenon decides three and weeds out four. The great way to the capital goes seven ways across and eight ways up and down. Suddenly, if you can open your mouth and explain fully, take steps and walk, then you can hang your bowl and bag up high and break your staff. But tell me, who is this? Dijang once asked Fayan, where are you going? Fayan said, around on pilgrimage. Dijang said, what's the purpose of your pilgrimage? Fayan said, I don't know. Dijang said, not knowing is nearest. Hongzhen's poem. Now having studied to the full, it's like before. Having shed entirely the finest thread, he reaches not knowing. Let it be short, let it be long. Stop cutting and patching. Going along with the high, along with the low, it levels itself. The abundance or scarcity of the house is used according to the occasion. Roaming serenely in the land, he goes where his feet take him. The purpose of 10 years pilgrimage Clearly, he turned his back on one pair of eyebrows. So, good morning. And I wanted to, um, you know, just acknowledge that every Sunday we have a host of Sangha members, students and friends joining us from elsewhere, wherever you are. And I hope that those of you who join us in this way for the talk can um, precede this with some sitting so that you're developing um, your mind in your zazen, both because that's good in and of itself, and also because it helps us to listen, to encounter the Dharma. So, do your best. <laughs> Dijang in this koan is, was a 9th century, early 10th century Chinese master. Fayan ended up becoming his disciple and heir. And... Um, he studied, Dijang started studying with Zhui Feng, who was a very well-known teacher at that time, and wasn't really making much headway. And so went on to study with Zhuangxia, who was Zhui Feng's disciple, and came to realization, became his heir. You know, the student's affinity for a teacher is not just a feeling but it's their ability to work with that teacher. And sometimes it's the, it's the combination of the two that makes it particularly strong or propitious or not. And sometimes it's where the student might be at that particular time in their training, where that teacher, that style of teaching may be very helpful and appropriate and timely or, or not. And so it's one of the benefits of having different teachers, as we do in our own Sangha. Um, sometimes that can be confusing for students because, particularly if they're 
somebody is interested in becoming a student and they're trying to figure out who they want to study with. But it's, it's a thing. <laughs> so here in the pointer, the profound talk entering into noumenon. Dogen speaks of subtle communication. You know, these pointers in the commentary, the verses, there's this wealth through the koan tradition of these, you know, in, in this tradition, in this koan collection, these were collected by um, Hong Zhu, this great Chinese master, taught silent illumination, which um, Dogen studied and brought back and taught as Shikantaza, and was also a, a renowned poet and really writes some of the most beautiful poetry. And that's one reason I love this collection is because I get to spend time with his poetry. And then subsequent teachers in Blue Cliff Record, in the book Serenity, would add commentaries and footnotes and so on. So there's this really wealth of teachings, really, within each of these koans. And the pointer and the verse are both often pointing back to the koan and trying to clarify, bring out the main point, sometimes bringing out other points. Sometimes it's really just sort of celebrating the teacher just praising words for the teacher. But it's all, like all teachings, you know, it's all designed to help the student study and to study themselves and to study the Dharma and to come to understanding. And so when he says the profound talk entering into Numenon, and Dogen speaks of subtle communication, he's talking about communication, an expression that goes beyond the meaning of words and concepts. It's one of the things that I think the Zen tradition understands, understood and really brought into sort of an exquisite presence within the tradition is the understanding of the trap of language, how we get caught in language and the meaning, get tangled up in that because we solidify it and, and make it into something it's not and get attached to it. But also that it has great power. Language has great power. And we know that. We're experiencing that power all the time, even when we get entangled. But the power really isn't in some, it is in the language, but it's really in our mind and how we're relating to that language. And so when that language is very skillful, very powerful, and it's good, it's based in something that is true and good, and then we engage it in a way that is sincere and deep, then there's a great potential. But this profound talk, this subtle communication ultimately needs to enter into noumenon. We have to actually come forth into the world of concepts and meaning, people and ideas. The great way to the capital, he says, goes seven ways across and eight ways up and down. The capital is often used as an image to express your essential nature. It's like the, the heart of the world. It's like the center of the universe, your basic nature. That heart of being, as Dadaroshi spoke of it, it goes in all directions where nothing is left out. And he says, if you can explain fully, then you can hang up your bowl and bag up high. So he's talking about the, the objects that a, a wandering monastic, a pilgrim, would be carrying. Their staff that they carried, their, their bowl, their wariyoki bowl, their bag, which contains their few possessions. They can hang them up. They don't need to travel anymore. Right? Because they've done what they came to do. It's nice, you know, the image of a path. 
to think of being on a spiritual path. There's much beautiful poetry and language in the tradition that celebrates that, that inspires us in its language. But what we need to understand that all of that is to inspire us, not to just delight in beautiful language, but to practice. <laughs> the purpose of its inspiration and its beauty is not in and of itself, but it's to bring us to that capital, to bring us into the heart of being. Daroshi used to say often, to practice is to do. Practice is something we, we do. It's, a, it's an active thing. It's a verb. It's a living thing. The Buddhist path is a living thing. It ha which means it has to be lived. Not just lived in terms of practicing it, but lived in terms of bringing it forth. Right? The profound talk entering into noumenon. To embody it. That's the great challenge. That's the greater challenge that, as far as I can tell, never quite ends. <laughs> a living thing is to be lived. And so that means, in order to do that, that we have to meet along the way everything that seems to place us outside that path, everything that would stop up our capacity for profound talk, everything that seems to obstruct our way to the capital, to the heart of being. When we talk about practice, that's much of what we're doing, is dealing, is practicing what seems to prevent us from practicing. But it's not, actually. That's how we develop. It's how we understand what practice is. And it's how we understand that those things that are obstructing us aren't, don't have the capacity in and of themselves to be obstructive. It's what we do with them. We know how to meet things within ourselves, outside of ourselves, in a variety of ways. We know how to meet them in numbness. We know how to meet them with explanation, to explain what they are. We know how to deflect from those things that we meet, to rationalize, to distract ourselves. We know how to confront them, to wage war against them. These are all old and, I would say, tired ways <laughs> of meeting the self. But how do we walk a true path? So here in this koan, Phaeon, who went on to become a very important teacher, is on a pilgrimage. And so Dijang asks us, where are you going? And the footnote to that says, why frame the person? So the footnotes are like somebody off in the wings who's listening and then calls out, why frame the person? <laughs> so the moment you ask, where? Where are you going? Then you seem to be obliged to provide a, a destination, a direction. What's the point of this? Right? To turn it into something. And of course, these are questions we ask and are asked all the time. What are you doing? Where are you going? What do you want to be when you grow up? They're ordinary questions. They're not harmful questions. They can be clarifying questions. Sometimes the questioner just wants to know. Sometimes it's just a way of saying hello. Sometimes the questioner is asking on a different plane. 
Much of the teachings we see that, particularly in the koans, the student, the teacher asks a question, which is very ordinary. And they're waiting to see, how does the student answer? In other words, do they have a, a set frame of reference from which they're going to answer that question, which helps the teacher to understand where the student is coming from. Genuine inquiry, which is such a vital part of the Buddhist path, genuine inquiry leads us in, brings us in closer. And it brings us into a place as we bring our attention in. It's like the breath. You can focus in on the breath. And in the beginning, it can seem very small and tight, confined. That's not the breath. It's our mind. It's our body. But as, we, as, that, as that is released, as that begins to shift in our practice, suddenly we find that that breath is expansive. That that focus which began narrow is now is becoming more and more open, boundless. But you know, even if people are asking questions like that and to sort of put us into a box, oh, that's what you do. Oh, that's who you are. We don't have to put ourselves into a box. I like to ask those questions. You know, where you grew up. To me, that, it's interesting, like, what part of the world influenced you? Like, what were your influences? What part of the country, what part of the world? It doesn't explain anything. It doesn't define anybody. And so he says, where are you going? If I says, around on pilgrimage. <clears throat> Dijang says, what is the purpose of your pilgrimage? And so this was a traditional way of practicing, that students would travel from monastery to monastery, study with a teacher. For many years, in, in the, the ango, what we call ango, these intensive training periods, were, would be a period where students would gather from all over and go to study at a particular monastery or a particular teacher because they wanted to, and they would study intensively in, in a cloister and not leave, traditionally during Ango, once it begins, there's no coming and going. Because it was all monastic. And then afterwards, everybody disperses. Well, not everybody, but, you know, but, but many of those students would disperse and keep wandering, go back to home temples, and then the next Ango, they would find another place. And so here, Fayan is on a pilgrimage. So in a way, Dijang is asking a question that's self-evident. It was a custom, it was a practice of the time. So why is he asking? What is the purpose of your pilgrimage? The note says, after all, Dijang doesn't let him go. He probes further. And Fayan says, I don't know. And the footnote says, oh, why didn't you say so earlier? And Dijang says, not knowing is nearest. When Dadaroshi would give talks on this koan, he would say, not knowing, ah, intimate, Inti most intimate indeed. Not knowing is most intimate. And the teachings talk a lot, particularly in Zen tradition, about knowing and not knowing. These are common phrases, particularly not knowing. Right? Knowing we kind of get, we sort of understand that. That's what we come in doing, right? is knowing about stuff. Being cognizant, having understanding, having knowledge. Uh, 
being able to talk about things. But what is not knowing? And so it's very important to be careful in not, not knowing, knowing. And it's also important that in knowing, to not know. And what is this really about? It's talking about, it's pointing to a mind. We could say a state of mind, but it's a basic nature of mind. So we devote lots and lots of energy to learning, gaining knowledge. It's part of what, I mean, it's part of what every living creature does. It's to learn, like, how do I be this thing? Four legs, two legs, wings. you got to learn how to be that thing, right? How do you use this body? How do you navigate the world? How do you get food? Right? We have to learn that too. And so we gain knowledge and skills. We study. We listen to people who know things and learn from them. And this is much rewarded, right? This is what gets us rewarded. And it's a kind of power. And it is a kind of power. It can be very helpful. It can be other things. And yet we can know much about something without ever having really come close to it. In the earlier years, when Dadaroshi was really developing the born as the earth um, work, sort of working with the earth and all that is sort of other than human as a place of practice, a place of study, that he, he wanted to do a treat where he wanted to invite people who are sort of professional environmentalists who might not have ever been outside. <laughs> and take them outside, obviously. <laughs> so we can know a lot about something without ever having really touched it, come close to it. We can appreciate beautiful music and art and dance, writing, and have it all stay very much in the head, very cerebral. We can feel something very deeply, but not know much about it. But we feel it deeply. Right? We can act on things based on what we know about them, but never having really made contact with them. We can act on things, feeling something, but really having no idea what it is. I was listening to a, a reading an article uh, after the Iowa caucus voting when the uh, reporter talked to a voter and you know about what led you to vote the way you did. And the, the guy says, I don't think about this much. I just go with my gut. And of course, we know that. And just this morning, I was reading an article that was in the paper about, about um, <clears throat> studies that are being done on us people in this country, divisiveness, polarization, and how more and more the divides are not so much based on ideology, political beliefs, positions on policies, but really just a visceral, a gut feeling of dislike. I just don't like you. It's not so much because you, you have different political beliefs, I just don't like you. right? Because you're a Democrat or Republican, or you're this or you're that. And that's visceral which means it's an emotional response, right? And in many cases, as this voter said, it's not an examined response. It's not based on 
what the person thinks or what they might do or what they have done. I just don't like you. That's it. That's enough. End of story. And they have a word, for, a phrase for this. The researchers or psychologists, I guess, affective polarization. Polarization based on the affect that we experience in our body. Just an emotional feeling. Which is like the weather. It comes and goes. Right? As Evelyn Underhill has said, it's, you know, it's, it's not a reliable guide. They were, went on and were talking to researchers who said that the ev evolution of, of having groups, of needing to work together in our early, early ancestors, required that we cooperate with each other within that group in order to make it work. And there's been a lot of research about how much of our brain evolved because we had to learn how to cooperate, which meant we had to learn how to deal with the difference between me and you. And how do we sort of blend that together into a co cooperative group, but that that necessarily or required a hatred for anybody outside of that group. And I thought, hmm, required? Certainly that seems to be the history. It may be the easiest thing, but is that required? How do you prove that? Or is that just an assumption based on what's easiest or what we, the tendency we see? They talked about a, a, um, a group of Boy Scouts that were, um, I don't remember the details, they were taken on a camping trip. And the group, the whole group was divided into, or, or there were two different groups, I guess. And, they, and one was on one side of the island, one was camping on the other side of the island. And they didn't even know that they, the other groups were there. And at a certain point, each group was informed that, oh, there's another group on the other side of the island that they never met. They didn't know anything about them. And that they watched within each of those groups, the members of each group develop a hatred and a suspicion about the other group. They never met them. They didn't know anything about them. And it just seemed to like grow. And then eventually they brought the two groups together and they did something together. And then when they met each other, all of that hatred, maybe most of it, I don't know, fell away. Because now they were dealing with not an idea of someone, a living thing. So in thinking about knowing and all the ways that we know, it made me think of an article I'd read by Wendell Berry, who's been kind of a mentor for me, a poet, Kentuckian, who writes a lot about people, what we do. And he had an article called The Way of Ignorance. And he says, our purpose here is to worry about the predominance of the supposition in a time of great art technological power that humans either know enough already or can learn enough soon enough to foresee and forestall any bad consequences of their use of that power. But he says, when we consider how often and how recently our most advanced experts have been wrong about the future, and how often the future has shown up sooner than expected with bad news about our past, maybe that's not true. Maybe we should recognize this as our old friend hubris, ungodly ignorance disguised as godly arrogance. And then he goes on to talk about different kinds of ignorance, different kinds of knowing, really. 
Because when we talk about delusion and ignorance in Buddhism, it's not that we don't know something. We know a lot. But what we know isn't in accord with what's actually true. So right view, the first of the Eightfold Path, is developing a, a valid understanding. Not because the Buddha said it so, but because as practitioners, when we examine, we realize that it's so. Oh, this is actually how things work. Every intentional action leads to consequence. Nothing actually exists in and of itself. All things are of the nature to be impermanent. And so as, and so as we develop our understanding, it's not just taking on an ideology that somebody created, but it's actually a view based in reality. And so ignorance is a view based in partial or, or unreal realities. And so he talks about inherent ignorance, inherent forms of what we might call delusion. And the kind of delusion that we have are the limits of our understanding because we're born into this body, which has a particular kind of mind, has a particular set of senses by which we experience things, that work within a certain range of sensory input. So we can't hear and see and taste beyond what our senses will allow. They have limitations. Other living creatures live within different limitations. They can see and hear things we can't, right? And so there's just that kind of ignorance, that there's a whole lot going on out there that we can't, we, that to us doesn't exist because we don't perceive it. So that's one kind of ignorance that seems inherent to just being human. He said there's another kind of ignorance, which is ignorance of the past, that he says, in actual fact, we don't really know a lot about the past. We don't even know a lot, he says, about our parents. I mean, we know stories, we know certain things, but we don't know the insides, the innermost things about our parents, or anybody for that matter. So there's an ignorance about just each other, both past and present, that, that it, we, in a sense we can't know because we can't experience anyone else as they experience themselves. He says there's a willful ignorance that refuses to acknowledge or honor as knowledge anything that isn't subject to empirical proof. So if I can't measure it, I don't care about it. It doesn't exist. It's not worthy of my attention. So when the, Dharma, when the Buddha almost didn't begin teaching, because he said this Dharma is subtle and profound. It is not subject. You can't measure it with your senses. You can't grasp it with your senses. It is not, it's subject to proof within our own direct experience, but that experience, by its very nature, is beyond touch, is beyond concept. The, the senses cannot immediately grasp emptiness, because it's empty. <laughs> it's ungraspable. And so that's why when we sit and, and practice, we're letting those senses calm their constant reaching out and trying to grab something to know and letting that calm so that we can begin to experience this aspect of mind that touches without knowing, that knows without touching. 
he says there's a moral ignorance, which is based, he, he equates it to a kind of relativistic. Well, this is what's good for me. It's not good for you, so... And the, and the Buddha was sometimes accused of this, and he was like, no, there is a moral right and wrong. We have to know the difference, otherwise we can't do this, we can't practice. We can't alleviate suffering, we can't be compassionate if we don't have an understanding of what is fundamentally right and wrong, which is based in what is destructive of life and what is affirming of life. It's not complicated, although situations can be. And so the challenge is to know right from wrong, but without attachment to right and wrong. So in our clarity about right and wrong, we don't become self-righteous and dogmatic, which is not being relativistic. It's clarity. It's just not grasping. And then he says there's the ignorance of just a kind of false confidence, right? Thinking that we know every, I know everything I need to know. And so we practice being a student, being a beginner, learning how to, we are humbled by our mind. I hope you are humbled by your mind <laughs> and by your karma and by your habit patterns. Hum humility is a good thing, right? It's the, it's the curative, it's the corrective for our tendency towards grasping and knowing and our arrogance and solidifying, right? Because in that humility, it opens us up, it keeps us alert. When we're arrogant, we don't have to be alert because we know everything. We just have to be defensive. He said there's a, there's a kind of ignorance that comes out of fear that's based in fear, which is opposite of confident ignorance. He says people keep themselves ignorant for the fear of the strange or the different or the unknown, for fear of disproof or of unpleasant things or tragic knowledge, for fear of stirring up suspicion and opposition, or just for fear itself. And that's why Buddhism talks about how important it is to develop fearlessness, because we will, we're told at the outset, you will experience what appears strange, what appears different, what appears unknown. Because it is not known. It can't be known. And we're not used to that. And so we can often experience that as fearful. In Zazen, we can work very diligently to quiet the mind, and then the, when the mind actually becomes quiet, we can become afraid and anxious, because that's not a familiar experience. And so we can go look for something to think about. We can activate the mind. I've talked to people who said they got up and walked away from their Zazen. They thought, okay, something's wrong. That stillness, that silence was so unfamiliar, was so unknown and strange. And to think about that sense of estrangement from that fundamental aspect of ourself. And of course, the thing is, we can't know what we don't know. That's the deal. <laughs> but we can be sure that there is much we don't know. Right? If we don't know that, we might want to check that out a little. We can know that there is much that we don't know, and we can strive to gain more understanding, to illuminate what is hidden from us. 
and never without ever expecting that we will fully know, reach some end to that. You know, in the beginning, I thought, you know, the path is boundless, and, you know, and I thought, oh, what a drag, you know, it goes on forever. It's like, you know, I'm willing to apply effort, but come on, you know, like, isn't there a point where it's over and I'm done? And, you know, it just seemed like a burden. And, you know, there was so much that I didn't know, and that just seemed like, oh, God, it's just too much. And, and then, because I, I interpreted that as a failure, as a weakness, or something wrong with me. And yeah, so it's like, okay, I'm, you know, learning some things, I'm gaining some understanding, but God, there's just so much more I don't know. And it's like, oh, it just seemed like such a heavy weight. And then over time, that began to shift. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad I will never be done with this. I'm so glad that this will never end. That I will never reach the end of knowing. Nanquan once said to Zhao Zhou, the way is not in knowing or in not knowing. Knowing is a false kind of consciousness based in grasping at things, conceptualizing, objectifying things. Not knowing can lead to a kind of indifference and a path and apathy. And the comment on this is now when people hear this, that not knowing is nearest, what Dijang said, and that this was where Fion was enlightened they immediately go over to just not know. So just don't, don't know. I don't know. Just don't know. Which is just another form of knowing. He says they hardly realize that a phrase of the ancients covers everywhere, like the sky, supports everywhere, like the earth. A phrase like not knowing. When we know not knowing, it's very small and confined. It's what I know. And that's why I can pull it out and use it to dazzle you. But true not knowing covers everywhere, supports heaven and earth. He says, if not knowing is nearest, then what about an old master who says, the one word knowing is the gate of myriad wonders. Just affirm completely when affirming all throughout there's just affirmation. But then he says, but don't settle down in affirmation. Deny totally when denying, but don't settle down in denial. In other words, be wholehearted. Be complete in every moment. But just don't settle down there. Don't turn it into something it's not. Dogen says, not understanding is not the same as going blank. Not understanding does not mean that you don't know. This not understanding, this not knowing, in a way you could say is a different kind of knowing. It's a different kind of knowing. So we know, we know with our mind, through what we understand, through words that we can express, through things that we experience with our senses. That's a one kind of knowing. So we could say that what the practice brings us to directly is a different kind of knowing. Because otherwise, we couldn't live it. We couldn't actualize it. We couldn't embody it. We couldn't see, as we gain understanding about the nature of things, how everything is connected, how everything's interdependent. We couldn't 
use that incredible aspect of the mind which creates associations. Oh, if this, because that. And begin to tie things together and use something that I experienced here and make it and have it inform what happens over here. If it wasn't for that, then when we sit and develop understanding on the cushion, it would die on the cushion. It would be of no use to you off the cushion. And so not understanding, he says, does not mean that you don't know, but know in a different way. And so Dijon said, oh, not knowing is nearest, is most intimate. Bodhidharma said, insight is incapable of knowing itself. So when we experience self-nature, which is that self is empty, it's not a part, it doesn't exist as something. It cannot be, it is not an object. When we objectify it, that's something we're doing with our mind. That's our knowing mind that creates a name and categories. Insight is incapable of knowing itself. And so it is not something that has knowing. And yet, and yet, because it knows vis-a-vis things, it is not something that lacks knowing. What does it mean that it knows vis-a-vis things? Emptiness is form, and form is emptiness. They're the same, identical. We chant that. That's why we chant the Heart Sutra every day. And so this is when we try and understand this intellectually, we can go so far, right? We can understand this so far. But it can only take us so far. And that's why we're sitting in this hall. That's why we precede the talk by two periods of zazen. To let go of that grasping, knowing mind that is grounded in my frame of reference that I'm trying to make everything fit into, which is what I already know, to relax that so that when I encounter the Dharma, a direct teaching, I can hear it. I can hear it. And not try and make it fit into my reference system, which is why when the teachings are frustrating, that's why it's frustrating. The teachings themselves don't contain frustration. (laughs) They're frustrating because we're trying to fit it into some square or round hole in my mind. Right? I'm trying to make it make sense with what I already know. I'm trying to relate it to what I've already experienced. And I'm frustrated because I can't do that. And what that frustration is really saying is let go of the frame of reference. That's why the instruction we give is hear it with the whole body and mind. Try and let go of the internal dialogue. Let it enter directly. There's a method to all of this. There's a functioning to how all of this is working, right? That is very profound. And if we trust it, that's why, you know, I said what I said at the beginning. You know, when we first started, I guess it was when we started putting talks online and that we had staff conversations and amongst the teachers about, well, you know, before we give a formal talk, traditionally, this is what happens. 
there's preparing ourselves to encounter the Dharma. We sit, we sit together, we're in the same hall. That's the tradition. And now it's like going out. Somebody could be sitting on the toilet listening to a Dharma talk. <laughs> or sitting on the sideway or driving through heavy traffic, you know, or cooking a meal. And I may be calling some of you in at this very moment, right? And it's like, and then we realize, and it's like, that's not really how the Dharma is supposed, is in, should be encountered. Are we encouraging that? And then we realize we've been providing takes, talks on audio tape for years, <laughs> right? So that cat's out of the bag. And then we thought, we can't control this. We shouldn't try and control this. But so we will try and encourage and sort of remind us about why that's important. And it's not just important so that, you know, I'm not distracted and I hear. Of course, that's part of it. But it's, sort, it's, it's all within a whole in which something is happening within us. Something is being made possible. We are, in a sense, creating a fertile ground within ourselves for this these teachings, these languages, these ideas, which do carry concepts with them, but their, their trajectory is trying to move into our thinking mind and then deeper. And so in a sense, when you listen to a Dharma and you feel something, that's what's happening. Or you're irritated or something keeps coming up for you or it keeps coming back to you, that's what's happening. Something is happening at a different level than just knowing. And we don't have to understand that. But we can come to understand it. And come to understand it in a way that is free of that, that original habitual frame of reference. So, I'll end with this aspect, part of the commentary. So one day, the mouth asked the nose, Eating is up to me. Speaking is up to me. What good are you up there? And the nose said, Well, among the five mountains, the central one occupies the honored position. <laughs> the nose then asked the eyes, Well, why are you up above? And the eye said, we are like the sun and the moon. Truly, we have the accomplishment of illumination and reflection. But we dare ask the eyebrows, what virtue do you have above us? And the eyebrows said, we really have no merit. We are ashamed to be in the higher position. If you let us be below, then let the eyes look from above. And an old master said, in the eyes, it's called seeing. In the ears, it's called hearing. But tell me, in the eyebrows, what is it called? When it goes beyond the senses, then what is it? When it seems to be coming from a place that we don't look for, that we may not have fully considered, then what is it? And after a long silence, the teacher said, in sorrow, we grieve together. In happiness, we rejoice together. Everybody knows the useful function 
but they don't all know the useless great function. The function that goes beyond being useful, productive, countable, measurable, rewardable. That's the invitation of the Dharma. There is a realm that is beyond gain and loss. And in that, we can, in sorrow, grieve together. And in happiness, rejoice together. And there's freedom there. That's the expression of our freedom. You and I have the same nature, and we are different. You and all creatures have the same nature and are different. These are not opposed to each other. They are not in conflict with each other. This is what the Buddha realized. To understand this is helpful. To have faith in it is good. To practice, realize, and live this as a vow is best. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.